So I'm guessing when you came in today, maybe you saw out there this, this nice pot that Tom and Linda so graciously brought for us tonight. Some potting soil, got some seeds here. I'm really excited about for the, the Johnny Jump Up. Looks very pretty. Ruthie, you'll be very happy to know. Look at the colors. What are they? Purple and yellow. I know, and she's a big Vikings fan, so she's excited about that. So I'm really excited about these seeds here. And um, so I think what I'm going to do, because I really want to maximize and have them be everything they were meant to be, is I've got these ones displayed here. And I think if I just leave them like that, that's really going to be, they're going to be great. They're going to thrive. It's going to be good. We're really going to enjoy them like this, right? No, what do you mean? What, what do I need to do? What's that? Plant them? Like, like take them and like put them in the dirt? But I don't want to. I, I don't want to let go. Like, I mean, because if I put them in the dirt, then, well, one, they're dirty. And then I'm going to put them in the dirt, and then I won't see them for a while. And then this package, which is really pretty, is probably going to be thrown away. Right? Like, sh wouldn't it just make sense to me to just leave them right here? I mean, they're on display. They're nice, right? No, you guys are looking at me like, gosh, he's crazy. This is a dumb illustration. And you're right. It is foolish. You're right. It's completely foolish. But this little strange exchange we just had is actually going to help us understand what the season of Lent is about and what tonight is about being Ash Wednesday. The season of Lent is this season where we are, are going to talk about and think about repenting of our sins, confessing our sins to God. It's, it's a time of year where we walk with Jesus on his path to the cross and think about his death. And as we think about this season, as we confess our sins and walk with Jesus, it's not about beating ourselves up, though. And it's not about just kind of moping and being sad like, he had to die for me. It's actually about moving past this silly idea that we should just keep the seeds right there. It, it's actually about embracing the fact that, you're right, these seeds are tiny. My goodness, yeah. <laughs> it's about letting go of the seeds, putting them in the dirt, dying to them in this way, and seeing the new life that'll come as a result. See, this, this season for Lent, for our service tonight and for our daily devotions, devotionals that are going to go out, our theme is, boy, I think I scattered seeds all over here. <laughs> Good thing you guys are going to help at the end. <laughs> this season for our service tonight and for our daily devotionals going forward, our theme is Lent means life. This season is really all about letting go of the seeds, putting them in the dirt, Embracing how through death, God brings life. And to get us started in the season tonight, we have a lesson that shows us how in Jesus we are dying to live. The lesson we have, it's John chapter 12, verses 23 to 26. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. Well, the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. 
My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, with our lesson today, we actually pick up pretty quickly after John records the events of Palm Sunday, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and he is, is honored in this way as a triumphant king. And at this point, there are big crowds gathering around him, as there was much of the time in his ministry. But here especially, people have been talking about and spreading the word about the fact that Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus back from the dead after Lazarus was dead for four days. We read about this in one of our background lessons. And also, as we read about this, we saw that really interesting thing where the raising of Lazarus back from the dead is actually part of why hostility grew and why the religious leaders were like, we got to do something about this man, Jesus. Because if he keeps raising people from the dead, everybody's going to believe in him. Which is, how strange of logic is that, right? Like, he keeps raising people from the dead. This is a problem. But that's where their minds were. They were so stuck against who he was. And so they were thinking all the more, we got to do something about this man. But as word is spreading, as they're conspiring, there are also some people who were in town for the feast that was going to be taking place there. Uh, we're told that there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, so one of Jesus' disciples. Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, so another one of Jesus' disciples. Andrew and Philip then together, in turn, told Jesus. And it's here as they have come to Jesus saying that there are these Greeks here who want to see you. It's here that we get to our lesson where we see Jesus talk about dying to live. As our lesson begins, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now the word glorified is a word that has multiple layers in God's word. We can talk first about the, the, the initial layer. In the language that the New Testament is written in, in Greek, it has this meaning of that which is regarded highly or well. So something that's praiseworthy. So you might think of someone who's worthy of an applause, like, man, that was awesome. Well done. Good job. Praiseworthy. Or you might think of like a castle or some really amazing fancy place where you're like, wow, this place is amazing. It's beautiful. It's glorious. You know, something that is worthy of praise. It's just, it's just amazing. That's layer one. There's some more layers we can dig into because when you think about the New Testament, it has its roots in the Old Testament. And with the Old Testament, there's a bit of a different flavor to the word that's typically translated glory. And so that flavor is also kind of in the background when you think about when it's used in the New Testament too. In the Old Testament, it literally means heaviness or weight. You might remember it was just over a year ago where I had some big weights here at church and uh, was about to throw it at somebody, pretended to. I wasn't actually going to throw it at somebody. Um, but the idea is that with something that's heavy, you know, it's not something you can take lightly, right? It's not something you can just toss around and move around. Like, it's significant. There's weight to this. There's heaviness to this. And when it does move around, it makes an impact. That's the idea here with glory in the Old Testament, that, that it's, it's not to be taken lightly. It's impactful, or someone is not to be taken lightly. They're impactful. But then, too, in the Old Testament, where the word glory shows up in the story of God and his people, in the account of God and his people, it's really significant there, too. There's added meaning there, too. Think about when God's people are being brought out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and God sent the ten plagues, and then God and the Pharaoh said, let the people go, and, and as God leads them out, 
We're told that while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. So God appears in this big cloud, and this marks not how he's going to lead his people. This is also the point where he begins to provide for them that crazy bread-like substance called manna, which literally means what is it? They weren't even really totally sure what it is. It's kind of like bread. Maybe it was kind of like lutefisk. We were talking about that before this service. Like, you're not really sure what it is. Hopefully better than that. Anyway, um, this, <laughs> this bread-like substance which God provides for them. And so the glory of the Lord is God's provision. It's his strength. And it's how he would lead his people through the wilderness. A pillar of cloud during the day. A pillar of fire at night. And then when God would have them build the tabernacle, which was that portable worship space, and in the tabernacle, there is this most holy place where God's presence would especially dwell. That pillar of cloud or fire would rest above the most holy place. And then when it was time for them to move, it would, it would move until they got to their next spot. Well, then when God had them build the temple, once they'd settled in the land, we're told that when the temple was being dedicated, this big cloud actually entered into the temple, went into the most holy place, and was so intense that for a while that the priest couldn't even go in there because it was too overwhelming, the presence of God. But now when you fast forward into the story of God's people, the account of God's people, later on we're told that they had turned away from God, tried to be like the nations around them and worship their gods. And so God said, if you want to be like those nations, I'm going to hand you over to those nations. You're going to find out what that's like. And those nations come and they conquer God's people, destroy the temple, and when that happens, one of the prophets had this vision where he saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple in his vision. It didn't look like a pillar of cloud or fire. It's this really crazy scene with these spiritual beings and wheels, and it's pretty wild. But it's the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. Now, an interesting detail is that when God brought the people back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple... Or maybe I should say an interesting lack of detail is that we're never told that the glory of the Lord came back. It had gone, but not returned. Which brings extra significance to things like you see in the Gospel of John, where John again and again talks about how Jesus revealed his glory. That the glory of God, it may have not returned in that cloud-like way to the temple, but again and again, through the miracles and different things that he was doing, Jesus was revealing the glory of God. That power, that deliverance, that rescue of God's people, Jesus was being glorified. And now in our lesson, Jesus says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, that this is like the pinnacle time where really this glory, and you've got all that backstory, right? Old Testament backstory with the glory of God, weight, significance, honor, praise, all that here. Now's the time he's going to be glorified. That in and of itself is significant, but there's also something too here to what Jesus calls himself. He calls himself the Son of Man, which we've talked about somewhat recently. Son of Man, it literally means Son of Adam. It can be a way to refer to any human, but in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision that took this term and added a lot of significance to it, a lot of weight. Daniel wrote, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. So someone who was human. 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And so we see that he's a royal figure, right? But then it also goes on to say all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him, which is something you only do to God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Jesus here, or excuse me, Daniel there is describing one who is like a son of man, who is human, but also worshipped as divine. One who is this ultimate human divine king who would ever have an everlasting kingdom. Now put that title, son of man, together with what Jesus says is about to happen here. Here the son of man will be glorified. The glory of God is going to show up in this powerful way here in the Son of Man. And it's going to show up as he's talking about dying to live. See, that's the really striking thing, because then Jesus, he goes on to talk about, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, what he's talking about is his death. He's not saying, okay, now I'm going to rise again from the dead. I mean, that's going to happen. And he's not talking about how he's going to ascend into heaven to the right hand of the Father. Those might be the spots we might imagine his glory, the transfiguration where his appearance appears before his disciples, that maybe. Feeding of the 5,000, that's pretty glorious, right? All those things would seem to fit more than what he's talking about. What he is talking about is his death. In his death, the Son of Man will be glorified. How's that work? Thankfully, Jesus explains for us right away. Because he says that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, he's talking about wheat. He's not talking about a Johnny jump up. But the principle is the same, right? You take one of these itty-bitty seeds here. And if it just stays here in my hand, it's one seed. Actually, if you saw it, you probably wouldn't even know it was a seed. Maybe you would because you're like Miss Flower over there, Sue. But, I mean, many of us would just be like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Right? And it would just be this single seed and not do much. But a single seed, if it dies, and Jesus is making a parallel here with being in the dirt and dying. If it dies, that's when it actually can grow into what it's meant to be, right? If it stays out here or stays in the bag, it, what, what is it good for? It's just a seed. It's just that one thing. But when it's buried, when it dies, then it grows. And not only does it grow, but it's then when it grows that it can give life to others. Jesus is using this image of a seed. Okay, it's through the death of that seed that actually can give life. This idea of, of a seed, or this picture of a seed giving life to others, is not a new picture that Jesus is just coming up with here. It's a picture that is throughout Scripture, deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's harder to see at first, but once you recognize something about a specific word in the Old Testament, you'll see it pop up more often. Whenever you see the word offspring in the Old Testament, I want you to make this little register. It's the word seed. 
It's the word seed. Which kind of changes a bit of the flavor, or at least makes more of a connection than when you think about when Abraham trusted, I, trusted God with his son Isaac, and God made a promise that through your offspring, through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Or, like when you go back to Genesis 3.15, and God is talking about the consequences of sin, and he says that I will put enmity between you, serpent, you know, the enemy, and the woman, and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. A seed from the woman would crush the head of the enemy. If you think about it, this image of a seed really makes sense. Because how did God design us to receive life in the beginning? When we keep that in mind, it can also help us better understand what Jesus is talking about here in this lesson. The story of the Bible begins in a garden where God and humans live together. And the biblical authors want us to see this garden as a type of temple. The top is the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is most intense. And that's where we find the tree of life. So what's this tree all about? Well, it represents God's own life and creative power that is made available to others. In fact, God's first command is that humans eat from all of the trees, including this one. So you're ingesting God's own life. That sounds intense. Yeah, this meal transforms the one who eats it. Or in the words of the story, it leads to eternal life. Okay, but on the way to the tree of life, the humans have to pass by another tree called the tree of knowing good and bad. And God says that eating from this tree will kill you. How does it do that? Well, it represents taking the authority to do what is good in your own eyes. When humans do that, it leads to broken relationships, violence, and death. And so here's the thing. Both trees look beautiful, but one of them is a false tree of life. And the humans take from this false tree of life. And they're exiled from the garden for good. Which raises the question, can anyone ever get back to the tree of life? Well, later on in the story, we meet a man named Moses, and he encounters God in a desert tree on top of a mountain. Oh, you mean the burning bush, where Moses is told that he's standing on holy ground. Yeah, it's a plant on a mountain radiating with God's life and power, just like the tree of life. And God tells Moses, bring your people up to this mountain so we can form a partnership. And this partnership will force them to make a choice. Will they follow gods of their own making or receive life from the true God? And in this story, they give their allegiance to an idol. And it's just the first of many. The story goes on to show generation after generation choosing gods of their own making. And these idols were usually placed on tall hills like beautiful trees. But they're false trees of life that lead the people into self-destruction, exile, and death. It's like death's grip on us is too strong to resist. Is there any hope? Well, let's turn now to the story of Jesus. He came to announce that God's eternal life was available once again through him. So Jesus thinks of himself as the tree of life. Yes, this is what he meant when he claimed to be the vine that brings God's life into the world. And Jesus invited people to eat from him. Yeah, he was inviting people to trust him and be transformed by his life. 
but Jesus also exposed how corrupt humans are, how much they love false trees of life. And so Jesus presented people with a new choice between life or death. And this time, they don't just choose death. They also chose to attack the one who sustains all of life. Yes, Jesus is led up to the top of a hill where he dies upon a tree. The cross is the sad and violent result of humanity's desire to do what is good in our own eyes. The tree of life has been overcome by the power of death. Well, it seemed that way. But Jesus said that he was a seed of God's life that would die in the ground, but then grow into a plant that would bear much fruit. So to defeat death, Jesus went through it. And now this new tree of life stands before us all. We can eat from it, but it will mean passing through death like Jesus, allowing our old way of being human to die. So that a new humanity can grow in its place. Yes, Jesus said he is the vine and we are his branches. So not only do you eat from this tree, you're invited to become a part of it, helping produce its fruit so that his life and love can spread through us to others. And so the story of the Bible ends in a new garden, which is also a kind of temple with the tree of life at its center providing healing and life forever to all who choose to eat from it. God's design was to give us life from a tree, eating of its fruit and having that life come into us. And when we turn away from that tree of life, Jesus becomes the new tree of life. And to be a tree, to grow into a tree, he lives the life of a seed, laying down his life, dying on a cross to pay for your sins and mine, taking the justice for it, taking our old way of life with him, dying there so that he could rise again and give us new life. And when we're brought to faith in Jesus, we're brought to faith in Jesus in a way where we are dying to our old life, embracing that life of the seed so we can grow into a new life. That's what the rest of this lesson is, is about. It says, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in his world will keep it for eternal life. Now, this is one of those verses that honestly can be kind of a head-scratcher for a couple of reasons. Because, okay, it says, if you love it, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. Well, that's a bummer. But if you hate it, you will keep it. Well, if you hate your life, do you actually even want to keep it? I mean, it's a weird-sounding statement, Right? And it can kind of sound like Jesus is saying that you're just supposed to hate your life in this world and just want to go to heaven all the time. Maybe you guess there's more going on here than that. Something different, something better. And you can see it more when you, again, dig into the original languages like we often like to do. The word life here is the word CK. literally means breath, but it's a unique word for life, or unique in that it, it doesn't just refer to your physical life. But it also doesn't just refer to your spiritual life. There's a word that's your physical life. There's a word that's your spiritual life. CK is all of it. It's you, period. It's your whole being. And so it, he's not saying, well, hate your physical life. He's using, here, it's, it's you. He'd have to be saying, hate you, which is definitely not what he's saying. And if we proceed with the verse, we can get more of what he really is saying talks about hating your life in this world. Or 
It's actually the word like where we get cosmos from, like the whole universe. But here's where we got to do a bit of a shift in the way we think about things. When we think about cosmos and the world and creation, we are very matter-focused. We focus on the material. In the ancient worldview, they weren't as much concerned about where the stuff came from, but rather how it was organized. Creation is about order and design and how it's put together. If it's not, like, if it's a disorder, it's anti-creation. If it's ordered, it's creation. Okay? So to talk about this cosmos is to talk about this ordering, this design, this arrangement of how things are and how they currently work. Now put that together here too with the statement eternal life. We've talked about this some recently. When you see the words eternal life in God's word, they literally mean life unto the age. An age in scripture is a time period marked by certain characteristics. And you can actually live in multiple ages at once. We can live, like as Christians, we live in the age of sin and death. But also now through faith in Christ, you live in the age of being forgiven, being loved, and having life with God. And so you can live in one age wanting that one age to be done because you want the other age to continue. And eternal life is not something you just have in the future. It's about having something now that endures on into eternity. And as people who have eternal life, who are longing for the day where there's no more suffering, no more sadness, no more sin, we do hate the way things are arranged in this world now. We don't want there to be sin. We don't want people to hurt each other. We don't want there to be bitterness. We don't want there to be war. We don't want there to be all these different things that we struggle with. We hate that stuff. doesn't mean that we you know, want our physical life to end right now, but we hate the way things are working in this world right now. We don't want to hang on to those things. Hanging on to those things would be as silly as me going... You know, I just can't let go of this bag of seeds because I don't, I don't want to lose it, right? What Jesus is talking about here is when you let go of this life, and or at least the way it was, this design, that's when you actually get life. If you hang on to it, it does you no good. It's when you let go of that old life, when you confess it, when you lay it down at the cross, that's when you can actually have the life that God wants you to have. So why Jesus, he goes on, he says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So Jesus goes and he dies on the cross. It's ultimately through death that we will join Jesus in paradise. And ultimately through death that you, it leads to resurrection. But even now in this life, it's through dying to that old way of life that we can really embrace the life God wants to give us. So I encourage you to think tonight, what are some things that you got to put in the dirt? What are some things you got to let go of? If you're a note taker, this is the time to get your worship folder out and note a few things down. And even if you're not a note taker, you still get to participate a bit. So at the end of the service today, I'm going to wheel this thing back out there. And Tom and Linda are going to help you with these seeds because they're tiny. And you will, on your way out, I encourage you to Get a seed or a couple or however it's going to work and put them in the dirt. 
And throughout this season of Lent, we're going to leave this pot in here, and we're going to watch them grow. We're going to see what kind of life goes from this, and we're going to see what happens come Easter. We're going to see what happens. <laughs> and we're going to see the kind of life that happens during this season of Lent. But it's going to start here tonight with what do you got to put in the dirt? Do you need to put in the dirt trusting yourself more than God? I know I do. I have this tendency to trust myself, what my own eyes can see, instead of trusting what God says is good. Do you need to put in the dirt trying to prove that I'm good enough? That I'm good enough for God to love me? That I'm good enough for other people? That I'm good enough to feel good about myself? Do I need to put in the dirt worrying, trying to solve the problem myself? Or I know for me, I don't know if I always try to solve the problem, but I at least want to understand it all. Do you need to put in the dirt letting what feels good or right direct me? Which is another way of doing what's right in my own eyes. Instead of trusting what God says, do I just do what looks good to me and feels good to me? Do I need to put in the dirt trying to find satisfaction in people, in things, or plans, the plan I have for my life, the way I want things to turn out? These are just some general examples. You might have some more specifics. Whatever it is, what do you need to put in the dirt? Tonight, I invite you, I encourage you, actually throughout this season, we will remind you that you can bring them to the cross let go of them, put them in the dirt. Because Jesus took them with him to the cross and then was buried below the dirt to take your sin and mine away. So you could be forgiven, so that you could say goodbye to that old life, so that through faith in him you could eat from the new ultimate tree of life, and so that you wouldn't have to settle for a seat in a bag. <laughs> but that you could grow and thrive, have life with him today that lasts on into eternity. Lent means life. And so let's embrace that we are dying 